You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds passed right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome back to another episode of The Spear. My guest on this episode is Major John Meyer. John, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, thank you, sir. It's my pleasure. So uh, I also want to kind of extend uh, my gratitude to the West Point Association of Graduates. Um, each year they give, some of our longtime listeners will know this because we've had guests on here before, uh, linked to the, the uh, Nininger Award for Valor at Arms. It's an award that the Association of Graduates gives every year. Um, to a graduate uh, for actions uh, in combat. And this year, this is why you're up at West Point this week um, to receive that award. So I just want to give a, a special shout out and thank you to AOG for helping kind of set this up for us. Um, so to kind of get started, can you give listeners a little bit of background about your Army career? Yeah, absolutely. Um, born and raised uh, Fairfax, Virginia. Um, always, wa always wanted or was certainly interested uh, in uh, some sort of uh, DOD service. Um, dad was an Air Force officer. Um, both of my um, um, granddad served. And uh, I didn't academically really apply myself uh, back in high school, but uh, lucky enough, soccer um, offered me an opportunity. So uh, I went to West Point Prep School as a Army Army soccer player, um, and then upon graduating from uh, the United States um, Military Academy, uh, branched infantry and began the normal infantry pipeline, going through IOBC, uh, Ranger School, uh, Airborne School, and such, uh, and then uh, began in uh, 191 Cav, which was the uh, reconnaissance squadron for the 173rd Airborne Brigade. Um, and, uh, I was there and arrived in, uh, 2006, um, had about a year to train up before we deployed to Afghanistan in April of 2007. Um, after serving in, um, the 173rd, I was a Ranger instructor in, uh, six Ranger training battalion, Eglin Air Force Base, uh, Swamp Phase. Um, and, uh, after, um, the, uh, Ranger training, uh, Ranger training battalion, uh, I then moved on for company command in uh, one two striker uh, brigade at Fort uh, Fort Lewis uh, Joint Base Lewis McCord now, um, and then uh, deployed with them to RC South, uh, very kinetic, um, very kinetic tour down in the uh, Kandahar Zare area. Um, after that deployment, um, I was selected and commanded the First Corps Long Range Surveillance Company uh, organization that did the kind of deep threat. 
uh, reconnaissance work for First Corps. Uh, did that for 18, 18, uh, 18 months. Um, and then after that, uh, went off for ILE at uh, the Naval War College in uh, Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, and then from there, and previously spent the last four years in Hawaii with 25th Infantry Division, uh, one year on division staff as a maneuver planner. Um, then one year I was up at USERPAC as the executive officer to the deputy USERPAC commander. Uh, and then the, the, the last, uh, the last two years, uh, first was, uh, S3 or operations officer for one, two, seven infantry wolfhounds, and then, uh, moved up to be the brigade operations officer for second brigade, 25th infantry division currently, uh, signed, uh, to OCLL office chief legislative, uh, liaison in the Pentagon, uh, as a, a army congressional fellow. Um, and I'll do this, this program for the next three years. Okay. Well, you're going to share a story from that first deployment, um, in, in 2007, but I kind of want to jump back, um, before that, you know, you said you branched infantry. Um, this has come up before in episodes that we've, uh, that we've recorded that, you know, some listeners might know, um, some might not know that West Point has a requirement to, to branch a certain percentage of, of combat arms officers. And so compared to other commissioning sources, there are a lot more um, cadets that choose to go infantry and the other combat arms. Was there ever any doubt for you that you wanted to go infantry? There was not. Um, for me, the greatest um, opportunity to serve, what truly gave me passion uh, was to lead, to lead soldiers. Um, and I saw no better way um, than to do that. Uh, and, you know, I came in in a peacetime academy in 2001. The towers fell in September and then, you know, West Point changed. That was a wartime academy at that point. And so I knew what I wanted to do and I wanted to lead men in war. And uh, um, I mean, aviation was, would have been amazing, but just my heart uh, was certainly in uh, focus in another direction. Now, I know there are a number of classes that sort of call themselves the West Point, you know, the class of 9-11, the ones that sort of graduated that year, the ones that started that year, the ones that were the first class to kind of come in after 9-11. Can you kind of describe, since you did have, you know, you had your summer uh, uh, in 2001 and then, you know, a few weeks of school and you said that the academy kind of changed. Can you describe that at all? Yeah, I think that the uh, realization of um, our country, our nation, uh, being at war, our nation that was attacked, that hadn't been attacked previously since the Japanese bombed uh, um, Pearl Harbor. I mean, it was it was uh, it was a situation that certainly affected the entire world, the entire country, and this entire institution. Um, you know, there's uh, there's a big a big difference when you know you're going to graduate and you're going to go on a combat tour, there was not a question. And so I think in some ways, I mean, we were still knucklehead cadets. We were still messing around. Nothing, none of that changed, but when it came, I'll speak for myself. When it came to, you know, I chose Buckner two squad leader cause I want to be in the woods. I want to be patrolling. I want to be leading. Um, I knew what was coming as far as combat. I had no realization what was coming as far as, you know, my firefight on 27 July or any of the other really bad firefights. Um, but you certainly knew that you better take your job, your job seriously. You better take your profession seriously. And was the 173rd, uh, where you wanted to go? So I was middle of my class. Um, the only light option for me when it was my turn was 10th mountain and I was ready to leave New York. Uh, so my fiance at the time and I, we had mm -hmm. talked about Europe, if we can't get anything light. 
And so um, I chose Germany to a, um, uh, a, a mechanized brigade there. And um, when, I, when I graduated ranger school, uh, I immediately started airborne school. And my airborne uh, commander had just come from the uh, 173rd Airborne Brigade. He made a phone call and I was pulled immediately. So uh, it's kind of weird fate. You know, 173rd is like you know, top of the class guys. And I somehow uh, got in the bunch. But uh, <laughs> every once in a while, you know, uh, the slow guys, I guess, win every once in a while. I don't know. So you showed up in 2006? I did. Yes, sir. And uh, did they? Did you know, did they have the sort of deployment patch chart out already? And did you know that on the day that you got there that you guys were going to be deploying shortly? I did, sir, but it was deploying to Iraq um, and the whole surge shook up everything. So the entire patch chart changed. So somewhere about halfway through our 12-month train up to deploy, we got the frago that we're not, not only not going to Iraq, we're going to Afghanistan and we're going up into, you know, the, a very kinetic area of north northeastern Afghanistan uh, in Kunar and Nuristan provinces. So when did you get in country? Uh, in, in April 2007. So you'd showed up. I mean, this is a year, less than a year uh, from the time you showed up to your first duty station. Uh, you had started a train up, presumably with Iraq in mind. That got changed. There's a lot of sort of you know, change in your life over the past, uh, and you're, you know, you're in the short time that you've been, uh, in the army, did you feel when you got on the ground, did you feel prepared to do the job, um, that you were going to be assigned? I did. Um, no one ever shows up one, 100% prepared for every single situation. Um, given the foundation taught in this institution, um, given the infantry pipeline of IOBC and Ranger school, given the, um, almost, almost a year, just under a year of training with the platoon and my troops. Um, I felt, I felt prepared. Um, I think there were certain things that, that we could have done better as an organization, certainly physically. And we were, we're the 173rd. I mean, we're a, we're a fit organization, but the mountains of, of Northeastern Afghanistan are, can, can, uh, certainly humble you quickly. Uh, and we learned that on like, day, day, day two of the operation where me and my, and my platoon were on an extended patrol, you know, up a very large, um, mountain ridgeline and, uh, about broke off the entire, entire platoon. Now I'll tell you that your acclimation to climate, the climate to the altitude, to the, to the, it comes quick. Um, and we were, we were stationed out of, uh, camp, Camp Keating, which, as you know, is, is is famous, unfortunately, famous for being overrun in 2009, and books have been read, and a movie was just actually um, was just produced or made for it. And um, Keating Keating was bad, and we knew it was bad going into it. And so our mentality as a troop was that we had to project force on the enemy, or the enemy is going to project force on us. And that was our our mentality uh, once we actually arrived. And so. We talk about preparedness. I think we had trained very hard. I think we had gelled as a platoon and as a organization, a troop. Um, but that that first two and a half months um, in the country prior to 27 July, I mean, we were incredibly busy um, projecting force and really trying to change the at, the atmospherics in the valley there. And was that so? Is that how you would characterize? sort of the mission. Um, and then also you said you were, you know, extraordinarily busy. Can you also kind of describe the battle rhythm for those first couple months? 
Yeah. So um, Keating sits down in a bowl. Um, above it is what was then named OP Warheight, then later OP Fritchie after my squad leader that was killed. And so platoons rotated where a platoon would be on Warheight, uh, platoon would be down at Keating. And then we also owned another piece of tactical infrastructure called Fob Camus. The troop also got plussed up another, another um, infantry platoon. So there are four infantry maneuver platoons in the troop. And so uh, we were holding down tactical infrastructure, three different uh, cops. Um, and then everyone who's not on guard duty, we were in some sort of a patrol um, um, rotation. Uh, and then we would do like multi-day, almost like a ranger school field patrol where we would be out um, in villages, in the valley, uh, on multi-day patrols, um, again, inserting influence in the area. Um, and we, we were very well aware and major Bostic, the, uh, bulldog troop commander, uh, was a seasoned warrior. He was well aware that we, if we sit back, the enemy is going to come to us. If we project force, then we can change, um, our influence, um, in the region. And that's really what we were doing. Um, that was our focus until the, the squadron size operation starting on 27 July. So 27 July, that's a great segue. Um, can you kind of describe, uh, you know, sort of the concept of operations from a from a squadron level, but also what role your platoon is going to have? Yeah, absolutely. So it, the uh, the squadron concept of the operation was to secure the ground lock from Fob Naray, which was the location of the squadron headquarters in the south, all the way up to Camp to Camp Keating. The Kunar River flows all the way through, and there's a single route that, that uh, follows on the west and south side of the, of the river that, that literally travels from Nuray all the way up. And um, we did not secure this route. Uh, we would try and do ground resupply and local nationals were getting killed, trucks getting thrown uh, in the river. And so we could only do aerial, um, aerial supply. Um, and so this, this operation was to regain control of that route. And so the, the concept was all the troops and the companies in the squadron would establish short-term observation posts um, along the route, um, allowing us to effectively secure it. Uh, and then we would push supply through. Um, and so on, on uh, 26 July, one day prior, our first, our first platoon uh, was tasked with uh, establishing an overwatch position uh, just to the west of our objective uh, to overwatch our movement into the into the area, um, they never saw any enemy fighters, any indicators of enemy activity, and so we departed. We being Second Platoon Bulldog Troop main effort with the troop headquarters on the early morning hours of 27 July under goggles. Uh, we we maneuvered in. There's a very small village uh, close to the objective called Surrette Clay. Battalion commander wanted us to do a very quick key leader engagement, get atmospherics, which we did. Again, no signs um, of any, any indicators or enemy activity. Uh, we then began to move to our objective, uh, put the platoon in a traveling overwatch. So I had my lead squad forward conducting the recon up the mountain, uh, led by Staff Sergeant Fritchie. We then established kind of a hasty defensive position on the uh, south side of the river um, at the base of the uh, of the large uh, mountain train train feature. Um, 
the Afghan National Army soldiers traveling with us, um, and kind of in an ill-disciplined uh, move, there was a small bridge, walking bridge, where they crossed to the, the north side of the river. And they looked down and uh, saw enemy fighters. Um, it was a surprise to both, uh, both organizations, both, uh, both groups. And so immediately the ANA and the enemy began to engage one another with small arms fire and RPGs. At that moment, the valley began to awake. Um, and I truly believe to this day, and I say it uh, in the speech tonight, I truly believe that um, the enemy had no idea we were coming. The enemy was completely caught off guard. And this is a sizable enemy force. If they knew we were coming, they would have hit us hard. What do you um, suppose they were doing? I think that they were pre, pre-staged for potential ambush of um, local national or, or American convoys on the route. They had pre-dug in, uh, pre-dug in um, um, positions on both sides of the river. Um, and so as this, as this now unfolded, First platoon on the ridgeline is the first one to really get attacked uh, in their overwatch, uh, their overwatch position. Uh, and then the enemy turns their attention to us, uh, the main effort force in the in the valley. Uh, a first platoon soldier shot in the neck. Uh, he is uh, urgent to urgent uh, surgical uh, condition. My mortarman sh- is shot next and the situation starts to become more and more serious on the ground. Um, I, I, I held off on, on my squad, which is a hundred meters up on the mountain for now until we can better assess the overall, um, situation as the fighting intensified, um, an enemy, uh, fighter fired a RPG round striking the, uh, troop tack. It's about 12 to 20 meters uh, below me on, on the mountain, uh, instantly killing, uh, major, uh, major Bostic. And injuring everyone um, in the in the troop headquarters there. That was two JTACs, fire support officer, RTO. Um, and uh, I didn't know immediately because uh, we had to bring in the quick uh, the quick um, reaction force, which led by Alex Newsom and our third platoon. Um, and uh, so at, at this point in the fight, you have first platoon engaged on the Overwatch position, my platoon, second platoon the main effort down in the valley. And now you have third platoon entering in with four Humvees. Um, and it was when the lead, uh, the lead squad leader for them, Staff Sergeant John Falkenberry was the first one to reach um, our, uh, our um, commander and then uh, notify us on the radio that Bulldog six was in fact uh, KIA. I think in my heart, when the, when the explosion went off and there was radio silence, uh, I think, I think I kind of knew, uh, but that was obviously um, confirmation. Soon after, uh, my lead squad, enemy fighters above me on the mountainside that were hiding in caves and defensive um, positions came out and engaged uh, Fritchie's squad, killing him instantly, uh, and then uh, engaging and forcing the remainder of his squad down um, to us. So at, at this point in, in, in the fight, Staff Sergeant Fritchie is, uh, he's killed. His remains are above me about a football field up the mountain. Um, my commander's killed. Um, we have, we've, uh, numerous, uh, wounded, some in, uh, urgent or urgent surgical staff Sergeant John Falkenberry, uh, after recovering the CO's, uh, CO's body was going back up to collect sensitive items and, and such. He's shot in the thigh, shattering his femur. He's now bleeding out. Um, 
I do have Apache support on station, uh, which was much needed. Um, at this point in the fight, uh, enemy uh, unveil a Dishka heavy weapon machine gun above me on the mountainside uh, and begin uh, engaging all three Apaches with effective fire, striking them. Can I, can I ask the, um, with, with the company commander KIA, how much of an impact did that have on sort of battlefield C2 in a very fluid situation? You've got now three platoons out there. Um, did some, was there somebody that kind of stepped into that role? So as the main effort platoon leader on the grounds, um, Lieutenant Roller, my classmate, 05, I remember him saying to me, well, John, you're it. Uh, you're in charge now on the ground. Um, the truth of the matter is, and I talk about this in, in the speech tonight, you know, we were sex, we were successful on this day because we as peers, the lieutenants and our senior NCOs, we worked together as a team. Um, I made the decision to pull us out and I'll, I'll explain that shortly. But it was not John Myers' heroicism that, that led to success. It was Bulldog Troop as a team of strong NCOs, soldiers, and officers who came together under uh, really intense situations and conditions. Um, and what about, um, you said you've got Apaches on station, um, but there were JTACs in the TAC as well. Yeah. Um, you know, who, who did that responsibility for just controlling that, uh, that air support fall to? So we had two teams. So we had a, a JTAC team with first platoon's overwatch position because they had really good visibility, obviously. And then we had JTACs um, in the troop in the troop TAC. With the RPG strike destroyed radio equipment. So JTACs on the ground, and they're also injured, both of them. One of them more severely. Um, so the JTACs on the ground with me were you know fairly combat ineffective just because all their all their tools were now destroyed. So we were, the Air Force fixed wing saved so many lives on that day. Um, and as we lost the Apaches due to the effective uh, Dishka fire, in fact, one of the Apaches had to do like emergency crash outside of uh, FOB Nuray, all the Apaches left. The only external wow. asset we had were Air Force fixed wing. Um, the geometry of the fight also made it easier for me as every American was on the south side of the river. So we really focused all of our aviation um, and uh, all of our uh, munitions, for the most part, external to us on the north side of the river. It was clean. It was simple. If it moved, we dropped something on it. Um, now, it, that, it's not as clean as, as that, um, but certainly for a leader on the ground who's trying to now control this fight, um, the battlefield geometry was helped a lot. Uh, and to this day, I'm grateful for our Air Force brethren um, for continuing to support us. Yeah. The, so at this point, you've, you know, the, you mentioned that, um, major Bostic, uh, had been killed. Uh, you've had a few other soldiers that have, uh, have become casualties. What's sort of your, at that point in your mind, what's the objective? The objective is to get, get our troop into a position that we can command this fight better. We needed to own a more a more dominant piece um, of terrain. Um, we were also somewhat split because we had fighters in between first platoon's Overwatch position and our our position. I had fighters in between Staff Sergeant Fritchie's remains and our our um, our position. So now, if you can visualize the fight, you have the QRF Humvees on the road below us. You have our platoon and the the remnants of the 
troop headquarters and a defensive position kind of just up on the mountainside. And then you had first platoon in their, in their, their, their overwatch position. Um, and so I had to analyze the fight quickly, um, try and come up with some scenarios. One of which was we last until, until dark and then we can exfil. Um, we try and fight our way up on the mountainside to get some better, better terrain, or we have to exfil now. Uh, we're also another factor here is not only did we lose our, um, our uh, army attack aviation, but we also have casualties that are, that are currently bleeding out and they need not just medics on the ground. They need aerial, um, aerial, um, um, medevac. And we had no suitable HLZs around us at all, nor could we responsibly bring in an aircraft when there's enemies shooting at us. I mean, we would just have a down aircraft at that point, which we did not need. So, um, I talked to all of the lieutenants. I talked to my platoon sergeant and, uh, uh, we made the call that we were going to exfil um, to the base of First Platoon's Overwatch position, which is about a 500 meter movement. Um, but doing so would expose ourselves. Um, all the wounded, which was, I don't know how many I, at this point, 12 to 15 probably, were we put in all the trucks. So the, the trucks were completely full. And then we did what like I call like the Black Hawk Down maneuver. Every able body, um, American and Afghan National Army soldier ran beside the trucks and we were engaging both the north side of the river and the, and the south side. Oh. At one point during this, during this movement, we got bogged down and the enemy fire got really intense. Multiple soldiers of mine were shot at this point and multiple soldiers received RPG shrapnel uh, as the RPG rounds were very effective. Um, and you guys are all sort of along the road correct around these vehicles. so if you can visualize the rivers beside us we're on the road then you got high ground both sides with steep uh steep mountains we're being engaged by fighters on how many vehicles four humvees um, and so and they're i mean even even if they're relatively close together with that much fire how are you you know how are you able to kind of maintain situational awareness and exercise command and control of of uh of the soldiers on the ground i mean I, i'm I'm with them. I put, I put myself in the back of the back of the formation as like a pusher. Um, it was so intense and so loud at this point, you're not talking on the radio very much. Now I'll tell you, um, Dave roller, again, classmate of mine up on the high ground was working with his J tech. They were dropping everything, everything possible behind us. Um, and so it was a, it was a combined effort of trying to use fixed wing aviation to suppress and destroy enemy buying us maneuver space simultaneously the heroics and the violence of action displayed by the bulldog troop soldiers engaging from the trucks with mark 19 and 50 cal and all the dismounts on the road everyone's shooting you're either shooting north or you're shooting south so i was probably the only one who wasn't shooting uh, and i'm just yelling at everybody um, to continue pushing forward uh, during when we got bogged down uh, and the enemy fire got very intense one of the stories i, I shared tonight um, is that private first class barber was shot in the face and he turned to me and he said, sir, I'm shot in the face. All I could do at this moment was to tell private first class barber that we got to keep on moving. I mean, we were le legitimately in a textbook kill zone and, uh, Sergeant first class bar, sorry, private first class barber shot in the jaw, continue pushing forward, uh, and engaging enemy fighters. Uh, if that's not a testament to the American soldier, I don't know what is. And, yeah. uh, 
So we we pushed through at that point after that initial law where we really got hammered. Uh, after that, we were okay. And we we pushed out and we got to the base of first platoon's position. We established a new troop defensive line at that point. Uh, and we were now in mutually supporting positions with third platoon, gun trucks, my platoon, second platoon, and then first platoon up on the uh, on the mountainside. This also bought us time, most importantly, to medically evacuate uh, with Blackhawks all of our all of our, our wounded soldiers. We 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 got uh, our our CO out as well on this, and uh, uh, it also allowed us to conduct much needed resupply for class five and class one. I mean, the, the, the boys, as, as you can imagine, they were smoked at this point. This has been hours long, intense firefight and you know, a firefight for anyone who's ever been in is a, is a emotional drain. And so, uh, it was, uh, it, this was a successful movement for us to be able to get into a position where we have the upper hand on the enemy. And in the end, Bulldog troop lost two great Americans and major Bostic and staff Sergeant Fritchie. We sustained over a platoon's worth of casualties. And this point I'm about to say is so important to me. And maybe it's so important to me because I need the, the soldiers of Bulldog Troop to know it. But it was the contrast, in contrast, the enemy casualties was staggeringly high. The, um, the brigade quick reaction force flew in 24 hours later to recover Staff Sergeant Fritchie's remains. Not a single enemy was, was spotted. Not a single shot was fired. And this was a bulldog troop that faced an enemy force of over 150 fighters, a numerically superior enemy force, three to one odds against them. And they inflicted significant casualties on, on the enemy. Why? Why do you think that is? Because of discipline, training, and courage. And they worked together as a team. No one quit on that battlefield. No one wants to be, no one, no one has to be surrounded to be outnumbered. But you do the best in, 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 in the situation. You continue to put one foot in front of the other and you fight for one another. And uh, I think Bulldog Troop is a true testament of that. I say it tonight in the speech, but some people will say, and I've heard this many times, that a leader is best judged not by the actions of his soldiers when he is there, but by the actions of his soldiers when, he is no, when he's no longer around. And it's a testament to Major Bostic's selfless leadership, his personal example his calmness in the face of adversity. And that's how his soldiers acted afterwards. So when you, um, when you do return to base, you described um, combat in, in a way that I think is pretty prescient. You said it's just emotionally draining. Um, what's kind of going through your head in terms of trying to recover from that and make sure that your platoon um, and really your, you know, the other platoons since, since, um, your commander had been killed. Um, everybody's sort of recovering because this is July, 2007. You've got, I don't know how long your deployment was probably around here. You've got, a, deployment. so you've got almost a year left, if not a full year left. How do you sort of recover from that and make sure they're ready to go, you know, the next day, the next week for, for another year? Yeah, I think it, it, it goes to the sisterhood and the brotherhood of our profession. And I think that we forced each other to sit down and talk. I remember my platoon sergeant, Johnny Ray Holly a great NCO said it is like, sir, we got to get the entire platoon down. We forced everyone to just talk about it. Um, no one joins the army and thinks you're going to go through a day like that. Um, not my soldiers, not I, not my NCOs. Um, and so I think it was healing for everyone to 
express to express emotions, to cry. I cried afterwards. Uh, it's, it's what happens. My mentor, my boss, and my squad leader were, uh, were just killed, right? That is human, human, a natural human reaction. Um, but to your point, this was not our last firefight. Um, and so to be resilient as a team goes back all the way to how hard we trained, how we cared for one another, the trust built. When you build resilient teams that have grit, they're able to get over tough days. They're able to move past. It doesn't mean you don't forget. It doesn't mean that there's not you know, scar, scar tissue there, but you're able to still move forward as a effective fighting force. And how do you do that? You know, having experienced this and, and now, you know, being 15 years into your, your army career, when you look back on that, you, and you, you know, clearly understand the importance of building sort of resilient teams, establishing discipline, that it all does kind of come back to training, but what, how, what specifically, if, you know, if there's, if there's a young army leader out there listening right now, and he's thinking about putting together his platoon's training schedule, what, it, what is it that he really needs to, he or she really needs to incorporate uh, into that to, to really build that sort of team? So you often hear, and it's said a million times, you train as you fight. I argue you train harder than you ever fight in war. You make training so difficult, decisions difficult, enemy more difficult, enemy more effective. You have to train to a level that your organizations have shared hardship. That's how trust is built. Trust is built by everyone working together shoulder to shoulder and really tough, realistic training. I think the best sports teams and the best army organizations would argue that they grow the most by failing. They grow the most by making mistakes. They grow the, the most by getting punched in the face at a JRTC rotation. You don't, you don't learn and become great and grow and advance and become innovative by having easy training events, by not keeping soldiers out for extended movements, but not moving in, uh, you know, in terrible weather and terrible terrain, uh, by not moving under heavy, heavy load. Talk about rucks are heavy. Well, rucks are heavy when you're in Afghanistan walking in the mountains with a plate carrier on with, you know, two times basic load because you're in firefights so often. And so if you build that kind of mentality in your organizations, you're going to build organizations that are better prepared and ready to face adversity in, in combat. Well, Major Meyer, thank you again for um, taking some time out of your schedule and, and, and speaking with us on, on the sphere. Um, it's a, you know, it's, it's quite a story uh, to say the least. Um, but I think there are some really important lessons, uh, especially again, you know, we have a pretty diverse set of listeners, but especially for say junior leaders in the army and in other services, um, you know, who are, who, who are kind of trying to figure out, uh, you know, what are some of the kind of tips to success, keys to success, uh, as they said, often they're on the career as army leaders. So, so thank you very much. Hey, sir. Thank you. And, uh, thank, I just want to thank, uh, the association of graduates. I want to thank West point. Um, this is a award I did not ask for, but I am, uh, supremely humbled by, and, uh, you know, I, I dedicate tonight's award to my platoon, to bulldog troop and the families of major Thomas Bostic and staff Sergeant Ryan Fritchie. And, uh, this is all about them. It's not about me. Uh, but, uh, I'm certainly, uh, grateful to have this opportunity to share the real story of the real heroes on, of 27 July. That's a, a, a wonderful sentiment, I think, to end on. So thank you very much.
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.